0: Meditation practice is a careful and systematic investigation of who we are. It's an investigation of our bodies as we focus our attention on the breath, on the sensations we feel in the body, on the subtle energies that we can open to, as we focus on movement that we make through the day. Meditation is an investigation of our minds, as we bring a careful attention, careful awareness to our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings. It's an investigation of awareness, of the very nature of consciousness itself. What is it that knows all of these different experiences? In Buddhism, when we use the word mind, keep in mind that it refers not simply to the intellect or to the thoughts, but it really refers to what we might call big mind, the heart mind, including all of the elements of thought, of feeling, of intuition, of awareness, of consciousness, of silence. All of that is included when we use the word mind, so please hear it in that way. And all of our stories, our personal histories, are quite different. We have different backgrounds, different conditioning, different family situations. But the nature of this heart-mind, the nature of this big mind, is the same in all of us. The nature of pain, the nature of joy, of happiness, of anger, of fear, of kindness, of compassion... The nature of all of these qualities is the same whether we live here in the West or in the East. It's the same now as it was in the time of the Buddha. And it's for this reason that the Dharma is characterized as being timeless. The nature of this heart-mind, the nature of this big mind, the nature of the body is the same in all times, and in all places, and for all of us. And because of this timelessness, a deepening understanding of ourselves automatically and inevitably brings about a deepening understanding of each other. That's why although we're practicing within a framework of silence and solitude, we are actually creating that field of understanding which connects us very deeply to everyone else. There are two perspectives in meditation practice which illuminate this journey of discovery. These two perspectives... Complement and fulfill each other. The first perspective is that of understanding meditation as being a science of the mind. And the power of the Buddha's teachings and the power of his realization was the amazingly deep understanding of how this mind and body work. As one uh, Asian monk said, he understood what's what very deeply. So when we see meditation as being a science of the mind, it means we refine and practice our powers of observation. So in one sense, those are the skills that we're learning. We learn how to observe more deeply, more carefully, more systematically, with greater precision. And the literal meaning of the word vipassana, for this kind of meditation in Pali, the literal meaning of that word is seeing clearly. And so really what we're practicing is the seeing clearly meditation. And what we begin to observe as the mindfulness gets stronger is that our lives are not unfolding haphazardly or accidentally or by chance. There are certain laws of nature at work. And one of the most important laws... that we need to see and understand because it relates so intimately to the possibility of happiness in our lives. It's the, it's the key understanding. Is the law of cause and effect? And what's interesting is that we can understand this so simply when we look outside of ourselves in nature in the physical world and so many examples of this are completely obvious you know we see and as we have seen over these last quite a few decades that when we pollute the environment it has certain consequences you know it affects our health it affects our well-being there's a cause-and-effect relationship there, even though for many years people seem to be in denial of this. We clean up the environment, it has other consequences. This is just one example that you know, we experience very often and very clearly now. In just the same way that there are these physical laws, expression of cause and effect in nature, The same law of cause and effect applies in our own minds. The Buddha understood and he saw so clearly what are the underlying causes of suffering. He saw what are the underlying causes of happiness. What leads to freedom. This emphasis on causality, on understanding causality, in our own lives is expressed very succinctly in one Tibetan, it's like a Tibetan prayer. It says, may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May you have happiness and have the causes of happiness. And I like that because it it captures the wisdom that it's not simply enough may you be happy, is not enough if the causes for happiness are not present. And so this wish, may you be happy and have the causes of happiness, may you be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering, it plugs us right in to what really is of essential importance. Now as most of you know, in Buddhism this law of causality, is expressed as the law of karma. That actions have consequences. And the Buddha went on to say that what most completely determines the result of an action is the motivation behind it. That, what most completely determines the result or the consequence is not the action itself, but what the motivation is that led to that action. And again, in one teaching that is, it's like a pith, a pith teaching, everything rests on the tip of motivation. In some way, I see the whole dharma contained within that one sentence. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. Motivation determines whether we have happiness in our lives or whether we have suffering. And we can see this in some very obvious ways. If through our actions and our motivations, we keep practicing anger and hatred and selfishness, that becomes the inner environment that we're living in. If we practice compassion, if we practice kindness, if we practice awareness, that becomes our world. This is not difficult to understand. So genuine wisdom in our lives explores and understands this relationship between motivation, action, and result. We really start to look carefully at this relationship. As we do bring an awareness to this relationship, we see that our motivations are often not that clear even though we can recognize the importance of understanding the motivation, when we really start to look, the motivations can be confused, they can be mixed, they can be a series of conflicting ones. It takes a tremendous willingness and honesty and a certain kind of courage to bring a sustained attention over and over again, to look into our hearts and really see honestly, okay, what is the motivation behind our actions? To be willing to see and acknowledge the shadow side of ourselves. And when we can do this, or even begin to do this, which is what you'll really be doing for the next six weeks or three months. And that's the beauty of this opportunity, just to sit and look and observe and open to all sides of ourselves. Through this growing awareness of our own range of motivations, confusion of motivations, we see that there is a need not only to follow our hearts in our lives, as some new age philosophy suggests, just follow your heart. We really begin to see the need to train our hearts because not everything within us is noble and pure and wonderful and delightful. There's another whole side going on. And so we need to train our hearts. All the forms and the techniques and the methods that we talk about on the retreat are all ways, are all skillful means for this training, for this investigation of ourselves. When Saito Upandita first came to this country in 1984, most of us had never met him before, although his reputation had preceded him. We came to IMS, and he was leading this three-month retreat. And in the first interview I had with him, he was asking me about my practice and about entering into the retreat and where I was at. And I told him that I really wanted to start from the beginning. I wanted to practice under his guidance as if I had never practiced before. You know, and I had already been practicing for 15 years or more in teaching but i realized that <clears throat> for myself and i think for many of us especially long term practitioners as most of you are in the course of these many years of practice we <clears throat> developed certain habits you know some of which are good and some of which are not so helpful and so when i met him in that first interview i had this strong feeling i just want to i want to Start with the basics. Now go back to the very beginning and follow the instructions from that place to see what would happen. So this evening, in understanding meditation as a science of the mind, I want to talk about just a couple of things that are the fundamentals, just the most basic tools of meditation practice, with the hope that, you know, in hearing it again and perhaps in a fresh way, to start your practice, to enter into this retreat really as if you're practicing for the first time. You know, not, to, not to bring to your practice sort of the different comfortable ways that we've developed So the first of these most basic tools, or methods of practice, is taking refuge in the simplicity of the form. What's the form of this meditation? Sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. When you're done sitting you walk, when you're done walking you sit, a couple of meals thrown in. Sit walk, sit, walk. And really avoiding or letting go of all the many unnecessary activities that we engage in, even in a place like this where there's not a lot to do, still, the mind can find all kinds of little busy work you know that just fills in the, the gaps in the day. Well, to begin to practice taking refuge in the simplicity of the form and not engaging in anything extra there's a tremendous power in that there's never any question about what you should be doing and if you're not sitting walk (laughs) and if you're not walking (laughs) sit. In this narrowing of our focus and letting go of extraneous things, there's a certain momentum and a certain quality of, of ardency, spiritual ardency, you know, that begins to emerge. And through this increased focus, letting go of even the little distractions, we begin to see with a lot more clarity and a lot more detail, everything that's going on within us because we're not distracting ourselves. I want to read something which many of you might be familiar with, but it's it's a wonderful example of learning how to observe and the power of narrowing the focus and what can be observed from that discipline. This is a story told about the famous Swiss naturalist Louis Agassiz, and it was told by one of his students, whose name was Samuel Scudder. Agassiz intended to teach the students to see, to observe. So the initial interview at an end. Agassiz would ask the student when they would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish. Usually a very long dead, pickled, evil smelling specimen personally selected by the master. The fish was placed before the student in a pan. He was to look at the fish, the student was told, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. Okay, just imagine the scene. You're with your great teacher, this great scientist. He gives you a dead fish. Look at the fish. He takes off. Samuel Scudder, one of the students, described his experience, this experience as one of the most memorable turning points of his life. In ten minutes, he said, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, another hour, and another. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it around and around, looked it in the face, ghastly. I was in despair. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned and listened to Scudder recount what he observed, Agassiz's only comment was that the young man must look again. I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and toward its close the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The day following, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish he announced to Agassiz had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassiz said, "Look at your fish." In Scudder's case, the le- the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction, and the best lesson he ever had. Scudder recalled a legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy, and with which he could not be parted. So in a way we have it easy. I mean, the breath. In the simplicity of the form of the sitting and walking, We create a reference point of some primary object, just like that fish. We narrow things down, we narrow down our focus, we get rid of everything extraneous. And we observe more deeply, more carefully, over and over and over again. We focus on this primary object of attention. It might be the in-out or the rising-falling or the sitting-touching. It doesn't matter what it is. And in this focusing of attention and the steadying of attention and the coming back again and again and again, we begin to discover things that we just have never seen. now this training of coming back to some primary object of attention this training of the mind and as you can see it is a training this is common in many spiritual traditions this is not particularly unique to buddhism it was described also very succinctly by the a french saint spiritual guide, St. Francis of Sales, he said, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing but bring your heart back, even though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. So can you remember that as you're sitting in this training, You bring the heart back, the awareness back to the breath. And even if you did nothing in the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back, even though it went away every time you brought it back, the hour would be well employed. Why? Because this is the training, the disciplining, the focusing of the mind. So we come back again and again and again. From this very simple practice, this is not complicated, from this very simple practice, but it it takes a discipline, it takes a certain intention, you have all had, even in these first days of the retreat, one of the most important and crucial insights that is the foundation, really, of our spiritual path. And it's the insight which reveals to us the value and even the urgency of this training. And that is we see how often our mind wanders. Have any of you not had that insight yet? I don't think so. We just see it so clearly. We come face to face with the nature of our mind and how difficult it is to stay steady, to stay focused. You know, we're with a breath or two or three, and then the mind is off and running, and we get lost in thoughts and feelings and plans and memories and judgments. You know, we hop on these trains of association, we have no idea where it's going, where it's leading. And what's quite amazing, these journeys of the mind don't even have to be pleasant. How much of the time do we spend just reliving old arguments, you know, and old hurts and old sufferings? Why? (laughs) Because our mind is not trained and we're just in the habit of doing so, we sit and suffer. Not only are we reliving old situations, that are not pleasant, often our mind is engaged in stuff that isn't even true. There was one yogi uh, last year at one of the retreats here. She came to an interview and she was describing this experience she had. She was sitting in her room, I I think it was about 10.30 at night, and she heard the shower going. And I, I don't exactly know what time and I'm not sure when the shower hours are, but it was after shower hours. So she was sitting in her room, after shower hours, hearing the shower going, hearing, 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 you know, and she was getting really upset that, you know, somebody would just be totally violating the rules and disturbing her practice. And she's sitting and trying to note hearing, trying to be with her breath and just getting really, really angry. Yeah, and so finally she just couldn't, couldn't hold it in anymore. And so kind of she stands up and charges into the bathroom, opens up the shower door. There's no one there. <laughs> and then she kind of was still hearing the sound and she realized it wasn't from the shower at all. It was from some water in a pipe somewhere else in the building. And immediately her mind became calm. and okay. The sound was totally okay. There was no problem at all. She went back, she had a good meditation. But thinking, you know, having that certain concept of this sound is this person doing this, and then they shouldn't be doing it, and causing that whole run, it wasn't even true. And yet the mind can be totally lost, totally caught up. How often do we do that, not only in our meditation, but in our lives? This first insight into our minds of how difficult it is to stay steady, to stay aware, you know, with stability, leads us to understand the importance of this work. Because very often we're not simply lost in kind of daydreams and wanderings of our mind, very often, both here on retreat but more often in our lives in the world, we are acting out these thoughts and feelings that are arising. And we look at all so many places of suffering in the world today, and there are so many, whether it's the Middle East or India and Pakistan or what's happening right in this country in so many places, What's happening in all of these places of suffering? Many of them, it's people acting out their thoughts and feelings and stories of greed, of fear, of hatred, of anger. It's the mind which is the source of so much of this suffering. we can really see how much suffering is caused by an untrained mind. And it's not only out there. We really need to see it within ourselves as well. And the Buddha expressed this very directly. And the words, these words for me have always been very powerful. He said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. But once mastered, not even your mother or father or those closest to you can help you as much as a mind that's well-trained. This mind, again, big mind, the heart mind, is so immensely powerful And all the causes for suffering or for happiness exist right here within our own minds. So in this sense, meditation is not just a hobby. It's not, oh yeah, this is a nice thing to do. It's essential that we train our minds. Essential for our own happiness and also for well-being of the world. So we practice, we practice in this very simple way, simplicity of form, narrowing the focus of sitting and walking, sitting and walking, coming back to the primary object again and again and again. And this takes, doing this takes a certain intentionality, takes a certain clarity of purpose, so we know what we're doing, there's a strong intentionality as we sit down. Because without it, it would be very easy to sit. And with some weak intention to be with the breath, we're with it for a breath or two and then the mind goes off and we're just indulging that wandering mind. It's not that helpful. At one point in my practice, I was being caught again and again and again by different kinds of fantasies and thoughts and they were pleasant, and I was just indulging them in a certain way. So at a certain point, I just I was I was on self retreat here at IMS, and I said, Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to get enlightened? Yeah, you know, and that was that was my way of reminding myself of, okay, well, what am I doing here? You know, am I just sitting and letting the mind do what it wants, or is there some understanding of the purpose, and that really helped me. A phrase that, that, you know, if you recall, might be supportive for you, which I found helpful. With respect to the meditation, nothing is worth thinking about. You know, our thoughts seduce us. We think that they're important. We think that, yeah, I really need to think this. Nothing, from the perspective of the practice, the development of mindfulness, nothing is worth thinking about. Not our stories, not our brilliant ideas, you know, that come about our life work or the projects we're going to do. Certainly not the assessments of our own practice, Which are almost always wrong anyway. (laughs) Nothing is worth thinking about. And so, as this comes, it's not that the thoughts aren't going to come, they will come. But can we have that sense of purpose, of clarity? Let it go, not now, come back. And that brings a certain strength to the mind. Our colleague and friend Sharon Salzberg, she told the story of when she first went to India. Uh, first teacher was Goenkaji, and I was there at that time in Bodhgaya. And Goenkaji would be giving the basic instructions, starting with the breath. And Sharon was totally new to the practice, first time she had ever sat. And she said she had thought breath you know that seems so ordinary so simple but that you know maybe this is just the instruction for beginners and that when the practice really gets deep then you, know, you get the real deeper deeper teachings so she practiced one year two years five years ten years each time she'd meet with with Goenko, the other teacher okay be with your breath yeah, and so she was beginning to wonder whether she was going to ever get the deeper teachings. Now, just be with one breath at a time. Well, tonight is the night for the secret teachings, and it's really too bad she's not here, <laughs> <laughs> because it's not about being with one breath at a time. That is not. That is really the beginning. the real secret teaching be with just half a breath at a time (laughs) because one breath is too much just half a breath just the in breath just the out breath just the rising, just the falling you know if we make the duration of our intention to be mindful, short enough, something that's within our capacity. A breath really is too long, because by the time you start it and makes the turn and it comes back down again, there's way too many opportunities to get lost. But in just half a breath, you, know, just the end. Okay, we can do that. Just the out. Well, you just watch half a breath at a time, in a half breath, half breath, half breath, half breath. By the end of the sitting, the mind is quite concentrated. There's a contemporary poet. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. I think it's Dennis Saylor. And I came across... Came across his name and some of his poetry in, in a small book of poetry, and had a little a little biography, biographical sketch in the back of the book. And this is what he wrote, you know, in his biographical sketch. He said, "I have been hard at work now longer than I like to remember on a novel set in ancient Egypt. I found out how the pyramids were built, slowly." Almost anything can be done, it seems, if one proceeds slowly enough. But we moderns simply cannot grasp this. When I read that, it had such resonance for me. I think there's tremendous wisdom in that statement. Almost anything can be done, even the attainment of Buddhahood, if one proceeds slowly enough. Because so often we're discouraged by our ideas of the enormity of a task or the length of the journey. We become impatient with the difficulties that inevitably arise and we can lose faith in ourselves. This quality of patience, of proceeding slowly enough, reminds us and teaches us that what is in front of us is just this moment. It's just this step, just this half-breath. We do not have to be aware of an hour's worth of breaths. That's too daunting. Or an hour's worth of steps. It's just this in-breath. Just this outbreath, Just this step. And we do it slowly. The pyramids get built. Our minds actually get concentrated. And I know this because when I started my practice, you know, when I first went to India, my mind was completely unconcentrated. I would sit and I would just think for the whole hour. You know, and I'd get up and, well, oh, that was a nice sitting. You know, I went quickly and kind of enjoyed myself. So I was not one of these people, and there are a few, there aren't many, but there are a few who just have this natural ability, you know, and they sit down and their minds are concentrated. I was not like that. It's like my mind was completely distracted. But I had a lot of faith, you know, and perseverance. So I just kept sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking, just doing the practice and it's been amazing over these years to really see how the mind can be trained. And this is the great gift of the Buddhist teachings. This is doable for all of us. But it takes the discipline, it takes the training, it takes the commitment in this very simple way and that's why I wanted to emphasize tonight just this most basic foundation of how to proceed. And as the mind begins to settle, begins to get more concentrated, even a little bit, we we feel the sense of inner spaciousness, inner ease. Things begin to flow more easily. So this is on that first side of the practice meditation as a science of the mind, where we're training the powers of observation exactly, precisely, systematically, We use these tools, you know, of focus, of narrowing the focus, of using the primary object. The second perspective on practice is understanding meditation is not only a science of mind, of seeing what it is that's happening and the laws governing it, but it's also an art. It's really a great and delicate art. We begin to see not only with clarity and discernment what it is that's happening, we also begin to see our relationship to what's happening, relationship to experience. There are many different ways we can be with our experience. We can be with the breath or movement or our bodies or situations outside, we can be with it. With a lot of reactivity, with judgment, with preferences, with our likes, with our dislikes, which is a lot of what we see in our practice. Or we can be aware, we can be in a different relationship, and we can be relating to experience with openness, with acceptance, with equanimity, with mindfulness. Those two relationships are very different and the art of practice is learning how to relate with that quality of acceptance, with that quality of equanimity. How do you relate to different sounds? It's just interesting to observe what our mind does. Do we like some and not like others? You know, for those of you who have practiced in Asia, you probably know how incredibly noisy it often is. I mean, IMS, and you know, this is like practicing in a little deva realm in terms of stillness and silence. And when I, was, when I was at the monasteries in Asia, it was incredible. I mean First, they were always in the process of construction, so they were just banging. You know these metal rebars, banging metal on metal on metal, and that, you know that irritating abrasive sound was right outside my window on one side, and on the other side, it was next to a, a like a you know small Burmese village, and the village women would do the laundry by pounding the clothes on the rocks, so the banging, banging, bang of the pipes on one side, and the banging of the clothes on the rocks on. The, I thought I was, like, was in a madhouse. <laughs> so I go to say out. You know, what is going on? I say, you know, there's all this noise going on. And all he said to me, and I was expecting at least a shred of sympathy <laughs> for my difficulties, but it was not forthcoming. All he said to me was, did you note it? That question points to a most profound understanding of the dharma and so it's a good example of how sometimes the simplest instruction when we follow it back when we trace it back and really see what it's pointing to the depth of dharma understanding can be revealed so what was included in that very simple statement Did you note it? Was the understanding that from the perspective of awareness, it doesn't matter what the object is. It absolutely doesn't matter. But this is a very hard lesson for us to learn, because on some level, and sometimes it's surface level, and sometimes it's very deep level, we keep practicing for some kind of pleasant experience. You know, pleasant meditative experience, our idea of what deep meditation experience is, something we so often are practicing for something in particular to happen. The art of meditation and the practice of the art is remembering that from the perspective of the meditation, it doesn't matter what the object is, and so we can settle back, we can relax back into that place of open awareness, open mindfulness. Sometimes things are pleasant, sometimes they're unpleasant. Sometimes they're painful. It doesn't matter because the nature of the mind, the nature of awareness is simply to know. And so when we're practicing in this way, we begin to understand and experience exactly what the nature of consciousness is. One of the things that fascinates me, as I said, is the realization that the knowing quality of the mind is exactly the same whether the object is pleasant or unpleasant. You know, and so I can be sitting in sometimes tremendous ease and, you know, flow of energy and very pleasant, and then maybe this is, you know, pain that comes in the knee, the knowing mind, is exactly the same. Well, there's a tremendous freedom when we then take refuge resting in that awareness, when we're not locked into I want this to happen rather than that to happen. And all of this was contained in Saira's remark, did you note it? We can examine the art of meditation as we're relating, when we look to see how we're relating to the breath. You know, the breath is like our dead fish. Right? Just This is what we come back to again and again and again. Do we want it to be a certain way? And is that how we're relating to it? Are we impatient? You know, are we with the in-breath in order to get to the out-breath? Or following the out-breath in order to have the next in-breath come? Do we feel like we're pulling the next breath in? Or do we get bored? Are we relating to the breath from a place of indifference? You know, the well-known meditative disease, which is good to watch out for, It's the condition of being more or less mindful. We're kind of mindful. We're kind of there, but not really. And yet if we're not careful, if we're not attuned to this state, we can get fooled or say, oh yeah, I'm I'm paying attention. And we're kind of there. It's It's not that we're totally lost, but we're not fully there. And so this is something to notice, the quality of our attention, how we're relating to the breath. Are we trying to hold on to it too tightly? That can happen too. You know, we become obsessed with following the breath and we're looking so closely with tensing our mind and our body, you know, in an effort not to lose track of it. The art of meditation It's not too tight, it's not too loose, it's just being present. Something to observe which will open up a quality of ease for you throughout the whole retreat to the degree that you can really see this and understand it clearly. And you can practice this with every single breath or with every single step. And that is the experience and the realization that the sensations of the breath are appearing absolutely spontaneously. There is nothing you have to do to create the sensations of the breath. They are happening as a function of this very natural process of breathing in and breathing out. And you don't have to really be concerned about continuing to breathe in and out, because unless you're dead, it's gonna be happening. It's gonna be going on. You don't have to do anything about it. It's just happening. And as a function of the inhalation and exhalation, certain sensations will appear. Just like we're sitting here and sounds appear spontaneously. There's nothing we have to do. So if we can settle back and simply rest in an undistracted awareness, the sensations of the breath appear and they're known. So we practice being with the sensations of just each half breath just as they present themselves, not looking for them to be any particular way, sometimes they might be very light, sometimes stronger, sometimes, you know, might be shallow, might be deep, a whole range of ways the sensations of the breath can be, but it's all happening by itself. So again, I, I say this now and emphasize it so much right at the beginning of the retreat, because to the degree that we can settle back into that awareness, we're just sitting, letting the breath come and go wherever you're feeling it. Our relationship then to the breath, the art of meditation becomes very easeful. So meditation is the art of skillful relationship. And what becomes very interesting to observe is that the more we learn about this relationship, the art of relationship in the solitude of retreat, we begin to apply that same understanding and wisdom to relationships in our lives. there is a useful distinction between loneliness and aloneness. Loneliness implies a kind of separation of being apart from things. That's when we feel lonely, when we feel separated from and apart from experience. Aloneness, I looked up the derivation of the word in the dictionary, it comes from the Middle English, and it's derived from all one, alone. Becoming one with, rather than being separated from. When I would walk with my first teacher, Munindraji in Bodhgaya, I was new to the practice, you know, I was quite young, 20, 21 years old, we would be walking down the street and he would be going on a beast and he'd say, I never feel lonely. The flowers are my friends. The clouds are my friends. And I looked at him. (laughs) Not convinced. (laughs) (laughs) But over the years of my practice, I have so come to appreciate what he was trying to tell me and show me. Because I've had so many experiences over these years of being alone on a retreat or alone in nature, alone in the wilderness and feeling completely connected with the moment's experience. You know, it could be just the feel of the air on the body or the hearing of a bird sound or just feeling the movement as I walked or the feeling of the breath And for me, this level of connectedness that we can feel, this is the real meaning of intimacy. This is where intimacy really starts, in the act of meditative awareness, when we're not toppling forward, looking for the next hit of experience, the next activity, the next meal, we even the next breath. This intimacy, this connection, happens when we simply drop back into the moment. We drop back into ourselves in the most gentle and open and soft and accepting way. And these experiences, and I'm sure you'll have many moments of these, you know, over these next weeks and months, in the solitude of aloneness, we have these amazing moments of connection and intimacy, and they're amazingly joyous, and as far from loneliness as one can imagine. And the key to this ability to connect in this way the secret, key to it, is in freedom from wanting. It's in freedom from wanting that the intimate connection happens. And this is as true in relationships in the world as it is in our experience on retreat. So there's something to learn here. Can we drop back free of wanting? And then everything is simply appearing and there is, this, there is this amazing connection, connectedness. So we bring together the science and the art of meditation. We see clearly and exactly what it is that's there. You know, and this is the purpose of the noting. We're, just, we're framing each experience. There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. It's that scientific side you know of careful observation exact observation we begin to see the lawfulness of our unfolding lives begin to see how causality works we also develop the art of meditation practicing this open receptive accepting relationship to whatever is arising. There's one Tibetan practice called cutting through. That's a translation of the Tibetan word for the meditation. And in developing the science and the art of meditation, we really do cut through to our essential nature, to the essential nature of the mind, of body, of awareness itself we begin to taste, in this very clear and intimate way, the truth of our lives. Let's sit for a few minutes. Let each breath come in its own time. Being with just half breath at a time. The sensations of each breath are just what they are, they don't need to be different.